everyone, this is Tony Holbein from Growblox. You're listening to the Revenue Formula with Tony and Mikkel. In today's episode, we are chatting with Katie Ivy about Walnut's growth at plus 100% year over year and how they're managing their go-to market. Enjoy. So we have a bit of a problem today. Oh, Mikkel, what is it now? Because we've once again started recording and doing all the great intros before we actually hit record. That's right. So I was basically thinking, we have a, uh, Katie, you're with us today. And uh, what's kind of, do you have a fun intro, something wonderful, funny, obscure happened lately you can share with us? Wow. So this is your intro? You just, you know, I'm pawning it, it, it off. <laughs> wonderful, funny, or obscure. I would say those are, those could be three very different angles that we could take here, whether we're going wonderful, funny, yes. uh, or obscure. Yes. Um, I don't know, obscure, something that a lot of people don't know about me is I took a five-year gap year after high school uh, and lived in Australia, traveled around the world, spent a lot of time in some very, very random parts of the world before I went to university and started anything that would uh, look or feel like a professional uh, career. Five years. Yeah. My, uh, five my years. parents were obviously slightly challenged with that decision. <laughs> yeah. It worked out okay in the end. I was about to say that. Did you do like, uh, so this is this is interesting. Did you do like something specific? So uh, a friend of mine, kind of from a while back, he spent a year in Australia as well. And he, he became a crack diver or something like this, or pro diver or something. Yeah. You know? Mine was not quite that interesting. So I went to uh, work for a nonprofit for six months. So that was actually the formal, it was supposed to be the gap year. Uh, and then I fell in love with the work that they were doing and the opportunity to travel. Cause I grew up in small town, Tennessee. I had literally never left the country, never seen the world. Uh, so I was very attached to the the mission and the opportunity. So I ended up working and volunteering with that nonprofit for for almost five years. <laughs> Pretty well, cool. It's, Pretty cool. I mean, we're watching the show where it's funny. It's the two kids uh, in their twenties sailing around the world, spending three years on it, and then his dad, their parents are super supportive because they were also sailors, and they were like, "Yeah, you can't learn the experiences they're getting. You can't learn that in school." You're gonna meet so many different cultures, and so I, I think it's uh, it's pretty cool. Actually, you've been uh, been taking that step. Uh, I was just super boring and went straight to school, straight to school, straight, and then straight to work. It's like no, it's called hey, it's called ambitious. Okay, <laughs> I don't know about that. I just needed to get it over with, I guess. Hey, both um, both tracks can work out very very well. So uh, there's no perfect. Yeah, obviously, yes, yes. <laughs> anyway, so you are zero at Walnut, which we're gonna talk a bit about today. Um, I kind of, I always scan through like who, who's the guest, where they've been pretty cool. I didn't see that story. Uh, your gap year on LinkedIn. That was why I picked it as part of my intro. There yeah, you go. yeah, exactly. You go. But, uh, you, so you mentioned Sangam, you've worked at Demandbase. I can see, I believe he's also worked at Demandbase. So Sangram and I actually overlapped uh, when I was at Pardot. He was exact exact target. So we we're both at Salesforce. Ah, okay. ah, there you go. We actually did our and onboarding together in, in Indianapolis. Uh, so it was, it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> and also both of, so you mentioned you're from Atlanta, actually. Or kind yeah, of, we both live in Atlanta you, as well. Yeah. So that, you know, there's another little bit of an overlap there. I'm yeah. not sure. But anyway, but you were also at Pando, um, which is kind of a pretty cool kind of team. And then obviously, you know, Marketo and so forth, right? So, yeah. I mean, you've, you have seen a couple of very successful companies from the inside, granted, not always being the CEO, obviously, kind of that part of the career track, right? And I think uh, Walnut now the first, like, CRO job, right? If I'm, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, you are correct. This is the first time. And I just hit my 90-day mark, so still very new uh, in the CRO seat. There you go. And if uh, you've been living under a rock, Walnut is uh, an interactive demo platform. Am I saying that right? That's that's kind of how you I position Perfect. it. Perfect. You nailed it. Kind of the, the first, I believe the first one to create it as well. 
Yeah, we're definitely creating that category. I will say it has grown and accelerated very quickly uh, over the last just over three years, about three and a half years. Uh, mm. But yeah, it's uh, it's always a little bit fuzzy in terms of who got started first. But at least from a funding perspective or what we can figure out on paper, I think we were the first. Yeah. If if you say it on this show, then then it's it's by default documented you were first. Absolutely. So just to kind of be gonna, just to be clear. Yes, now one hundred percent were the first. Yes. Yeah. And and uh, I think what you guys are pretty I don't know famous for I would say there's mm. this the the We Are Prospects campaign right I think that kind of still resonates with me a lot. Then there is this uh, at least I I still know it is the. The cat and the lion, the before and after LinkedIn ad, <laughs> yes. like very, very successful, right? Um, and then the very high quality produced, you know, commercial basically, where the one guy says, I wasted my best years on demos, you know? <laughs> I love that. Not just that you guys have done your homework, but I love the specific homework because you were yeah, highlighting yeah, yeah, yeah. all of the best things. It's also just now if, if a listener out there hasn't seen it yet, they, you know, Google it, go on YouTube, yes. watch it. It's hilarious. But also a lot of the other podcasts, anyone from Walnut has been on. I feel like that's what, what's been covered. And actually something has happened since then. You raised the Series B, a pretty decent round, as I recall. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously that money needs to get deployed to grow and get to the next stage. And that's actually what we wanted to talk with you about today, which is pretty exciting. Uh, so I haven't seen anyone do that yet. So nope. uh, you're going to hear it here first. I think what would be really helpful for the listener out there, you know, probably they've, they have an outside glimpse of the company, but can you maybe share us a little bit? What does the go to market team look like today? What is the setup you have just to get a feel for the mechanics of, of the business? Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe one other thing that I'll kind of just to set the stage, because you're correct. We've talked a lot and you know, of our CEO and founder is uh, just so phenomenal at telling all of the early stories, which everything you just mentioned, we are prospects and the videos and the memes and the cat are all a big part <laughs> yeah. of. But the thing that I think that we haven't talked about a ton yet is how that connects really to the mission that we're on. And, and you called out, obviously, that we're, it's an interactive demo platform, but really our fundamental belief, and you, you see it if you've watched the We Are Prospect videos or other things online, but we just think B2B go-to-market is fundamentally broken. So the experience of buying software as a B2B buyer uh, is really challenging. And that's, we made it very funny in the We Are Prospects, but it's all mm -hmm. very true in the experience that you have typically with a seller and with demoing a piece of software. And that entire buyer journey uh, can be really horrendous. Um, of course, it can be great in some pockets, but historically, and kind of if you think of the standard, it's just not awesome. Uh, so that's really what we're all about as a business. And for us, that demo is the fundamental piece. It's kind of that starting point uh, of how do we empower someone to interact with your product or your piece of software. Um, and it's not even always just in that live demo moment, but you know, think about pieces of software that you guys have bought, everything from how you're interacting with live product tours on a website and microsites and how you might be getting educated via an email that comes, you know, a few hours or a few days before that first call, you know, via an interactive demo or clicking through a product, how you're interacting with the product on live calls, the follow-up, how you're onboarded to learn about using that, that product as well. So it's all about really unlocking kind of those magical moments, but in a much more buyer-centristic way. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing that ties directly to your question in terms of how I'm running go-to-market, what we're doing as a business is, it's a really hard problem to solve. So it's it's easy to talk about, let's just make your demos suck less. Uh, and mm -hmm. of course, we've built some really cool technology that helps make your demos much more personalized, much more interactive. But when we think about transforming the entirety of 
the B2B go-to-market and buying process, there's so many layers and there's a lot of complexity there. So it's the most simple way to answer kind of what we've been focused on since that last round of funding and, you know, deploying the capital is what's our point of view and perspective on the entirety of that buying journey? uh, And then what are the areas where we feel like we have a role to really helping to solve those? And yeah, I, I feel like you have a question before I keep going. I can see it on no, your face. No, I, I feel like the, um, you know, be, because a couple of the campaigns on the top funnel were super successful for you guys, um, you know, th- that that must have resulted in a lot of not only interest, but also people really having the intent to buy, right? Not just, not just oh, wow, cool, cool new brand, really, really well done, but oh, let me check this out and maybe even go further in the funnel, right? So I would assume that, Probably early days, you got a lot of tailwind from from the great marketing work that was, you know, has been produced basically. And then I wonder how this is evolving, right? Because it's, you know, this this one S curve, and you know, maybe it's still going, maybe it's not. I'm not sure kind of where you guys are in this. Um, but then there's always this, okay, let's layer on the next thing, right? And and really kind of these these additions. Um, and I know you know it's an it's an it's an Israeli uh, fu- you know f- you know founded company, but very much in the U.S. Uh, right now, right? Also with you kind of leading uh, the commercial team there. But um, tell us a little bit more about you know how the setup works and you know what what the challenges were and kind of layering another uh, revenue motion potentially on top of this and and so forth, right? Um, yeah. I think that would be uh, that would give some some nice background in terms of the the complexity of the beast that you're maneuvering there. Yeah. Uh, and we are Israeli uh, headquartered and founded, and we're about half and half. So about half of the company is based in Tel Aviv mm-hmm. um, or close by, and then half is spread out across North America, primarily mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, so the entire revenue org that I lead um, is based in in North America. Um, and so that uh, makes up support, customer success, sales, pre-sales, pretty much everything that's customer facing or, or touching yeah. uh, the revenue motion outside of marketing. So marketing uh, does not report into me, but every yeah. other aspect of go-to-market does. And the kind of the uh, the, the real the, the question on top of this is really while there was a lot of inbound happening at first, right? Did you kind of build additional channels on top now, or kind of what's the? Tell us a little bit more about the. I guess you guys got to product market fit extremely fast, right? Kind of that that happened kind of extremely quickly. And now you know we're not going to talk about specific AR numbers, but let's just say you're in the go to market fit stage, right? Yeah. Really kind of scaling this up, figuring out what's the repeatable playbook. Can you share a little bit, you know, how that how that works and uh, how you're kind of going through those motions in uh, in Walnut? And you're 100% correct. We had these amazing tailwinds early on that certainly gave us a sense of like, yes, we're absolutely are finding product market fit very quickly. Remember, this is before my time, but I've heard all the stories, so I feel like I feel like I was there for the ride, even though I wasn't <laughs> there for the early days. Um, but one of the I mean, it's an incredible opportunity and a blessing, but it can also be a challenge when you find yourself in that scenario where you very much are reacting to demand in the market very quickly. Um, And for us, because of the space that we play in and the products that we sell uh, and that we develop, it works really, really well and is super applicable for small companies, mid-sized companies, large companies, Mm -hmm. Fortune 100 brands. Um, So we had companies of all shapes and sizes coming to us and wanting to try it out. We obviously had some very strategic design partners early on that helped to shape kind of the the platform that we were building and ensuring that we were solving the right problems. But we did get to a place of feeling like there's certainly product market fit. There's a ton of interest in this space. This is a category that's absolutely going to blow up. And so for that first, I mean, really the entirety of those first two years, we were really just riding that wave of doing the absolute best that we could to keep up with demand and react to that. Um, And to your question, the next phase and what we've been working on. And certainly it started before I joined, but it's very much why they they brought on a CRO and are looking to build out kind of the next phase of that revenue engine um, is this aspect of, of how do we 
anchor everything around customer centricity and then also be very purposeful at what is the right what are the right problems that we're solving who are we solving them for and what areas do we want to be absolute best in class at uh, because it's no surprise to you guys what a the, the problems that a 25 person startup are solving are different than a problem that Adobe is solving across their B2B yeah. go to market org. Um, and they're both really valid problems and super interesting and lots of great opportunity. But because we were serving such a large number of customers and much almost entirely uh, coming to us inbound, uh, there wasn't quite the level of focus that we needed to put in place to be able to get to the next level. Um, and so while we're going to continue absolutely to ride that marketing wave and try to be best in class when it comes to building brand and creating the category, uh, for us, this next phase is about being very, very clear on our ICP, what we're building for, uh, the key individuals that we want to lean in. Um, and for us, that, that'll look like a customer advisory board and just getting a lot more strategic with uh, anchoring around the right in personas and individuals within those revenue orgs yeah. uh, to ensure that we're tightening up the foundation so we can really build that outbound motion uh, in addition to the inbound motion. So, and this is, I'm going a little bit off script and, you know, <laughs> As um, maybe, maybe that's not allowed <laughs> here. Um, but this is maybe almost kind of a sensitive question, right? Because you have, uh, you've been there now for 90 days. Uh, half of the company is, is, is in Tel Aviv in Israel. And obviously there's a lot of stuff going on there right now, right? So kind of how did this affect Walnut actually kind of, is, is there, is, is there a little bit more of a shift now to the U.S. side? Because that's maybe a little bit more stable right now in terms of, um, just the employees and you know what they can focus on. I'm, I mean, I'm guessing kind of that that kind of um, I don't want to call it a disruption, but but that kind of event obviously must have shook uh, not only the country but also the the go to market org and the company at the same time, right? So kind of managing through that as a, as a CRO plus having all the pressure of hey, this is a, a rocket ship, you know, startup company, and you have all those expectations. That must be a really difficult, difficult, you know, uh, mix of, of challenges to uh, to manage through, right? Yeah. So uh, interesting timing, to say the least. Uh, I yeah. signed my offer letter to join Walnut two days before October 7th. So literally Got right it. before the war broke out. Fo the go-to-market focus into the U.S. is not new. So it's been the core of where our customers and our sales and revenue team have been based um, from very early on in the company. Mm -hmm. um, so that decision was made uh, even before I was hired. Um, they clearly were looking for a CRO in the U.S. because of that. Um, but yes, the dynamic of what's gone on and is continues to go on in Israel certainly has added complexity. I mean, even to the point that, you know, key individuals on our executive team were pulled into the reserves and there was yes. a lot of disruption in terms of uh, how to do the work. And we're running calls. And the, the, my first day on the job, we ran our management meeting and it was 10.30 p.m. for the Israeli team because that was the only hour that they could all be on a Zoom uh, because of, you know, numbers that were uh, involved in literally life and death scenarios and situations. Yes. So it certainly added complexity. Um, I also had planned to spend my second and third week in Tel Aviv. So getting to yeah. know the management team in person, uh, I had the opportunity to meet Yoav during my interview process. So I had met the CEO in person, uh, but I hadn't met anyone else. Um, and we had to push that back a bit because of safety yeah. reasons. I was able yeah, to go course. to Tel Aviv three, four weeks ago. Uh, I went for the first time and we did. We finally got to do the management offsite and spent a lot of time uh, the team is incredible. The office is incredible. The city is incredible. Yeah. Uh, such amazing, resilient, uh, phenomenal human beings. So I won't take us further off course because I could talk much more about the topic. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, but it has Thanks. certainly, to your question, added a layer of complexity uh, that I did not expect or plan for when I signed the offer letter or made the decision. So sometimes when you bring on uh, a senior role like you, it's also to 
to build something very specific or achieve something very specific, right? And you mentioned you're obviously you have a sale, a lot of a sales experience. You're located in the U.S. and the focus is on U.S. So it sounds to me like the focus for Walnut right now is to build up the outbound motion because inbound is working with emphasis on you on U.S. Is that kind of yeah, did I read that right? Yeah. Yep. So it's it's to build up the outbound motion. It's also to be very specific and targeted in our various segment motions. So we've mm -hmm. had more of a one size fits all approach because we were primarily reacting to inbound demand. So building mm -hmm. out the right motions that are scalable and efficient and customer centric for yeah. small companies, mid sized companies, and large companies for sure. And and I'm curious, like how far how far are you in that process of building out outbound? Did it start with you? kind of uh, you as a hire and now you're going to go build it or was there already an initiative just to get a feel for where are we in the in the process of mm -hmm. building we've, up this we've already 100 percent cracked the code we've got it all flowing okay perfect. there you go so there's no um, market fit <laughs> uh, absolutely we have a ton of work to do there and it was already in motion and it was a key topic of conversation before i joined it was something that we were very aware that we needed to get more sophisticated more strategic i mean just think i mean back to very much fundamentals building a clear target account list identifying your core personas and then having very specific messaging for each. We had started some of that, um, but being a very new category and a category that's evolving as quickly as ours is, um, there, there definitely was some additional work that needed to be done. So that's where we focused a lot of my first three months has been really about let's nail what we've spent a lot of time in data wanting to make sure we're making the right decisions in terms of really what's the core of the ICP for both a company perspective as well as the personas um, so that we're then building the right target account list and layering a little bit of technology on to make sure that we are because uh, we don't have a massive you know, sales organization. We don't have a massive BDR team. We're trying to be lean just like everyone else. Uh, so if we're going to go focus, we've also seen the stats. Like it takes about 10 times as many emails to get responses as it did even 18 months ago. Yeah. Uh, cold calling is making this interesting resurgence. We've all got to figure out how to use AI differently. So when we talk about even the word outbound, I think there's this assumption that you could sort of just build a list and throw bodies at it, and then you're going to book some meetings. Um, and it's become quite a bit more complex than that in terms of what is, I, I really think of it as everything is an all-bound motion. There is how marketing and sales and entire go-to-market are working together. Um, but yeah, we are still very much in the early innings of defining what that looks like for us and building it. Yeah, very, very cool. Very interesting. Thank you for the background, actually, because that sets us uh, nicely up for kind of the next chapter here, actually, which is, can you tell us a little bit, you know, what are the rituals or what are the cadences or what are the recurring events, the recurring meetings, if you will, that you're running in order to organize that whole thing, right? Because, you know, you kind of nicely used the all bound word here, which, you know, we could probably spend an hour discussing that now. But ultimately, it means is a, a lot of different influences then that lead to a sales process and lead to a new customer, right? And that that needs orchestration, right? So, what are the what are the you know? I, I started liking using the rituals word here. Actually, what are the rituals that you guys are using in order to actually organize this? It's such a great question, and I love that you're using the term rituals. Um, and I would say, in full transparency, that we don't have all of the rituals yet. Yeah. So a lot of my first three months has been very much listening, learning, asking a ton of questions, digging into the data. And of course, we're making a lot of decisions around that. Um, but we just kicked off our new fiscal year, um, Feb 1. And so a lot of what we're in very much early stages of in-flight is building out those rituals and that cadence and what are the right meeting structure and the right communication cadence. And it does add even another layer of complexity because half of the team, a big part of which is marketing that supports that go-to-market motion space in Tel Aviv. So yeah. what do we do async? When do we connect live? 
Um, we have a revenue kickoff the week after next. So my whole team's getting together in Miami. Uh, of course, a handful of the folks from Tel Aviv are joining as well. Um, and so that's going to be very much the the kickoff, not just in, in name, but also the kickoff of a lot of the rituals that you're describing. I mean, even down to the lens of how often we meet together as a team, I feel like some of the things that we all remember being really intentional in the early days of COVID, because for many of us, it was the first time we were running teams virtually. Mm-hmm. And now we've been doing this for years. And so it we get really sloppy, at least in my experience. I see us, we pay attention less to when was the last time we got together socially and talked about things that weren't part of, you know, a work discussion or didn't do a pipeline review. Like what's the structure in terms of exactly how we're kicking off meetings to ensure that people are engaged and focused and how much time are we spending on walking one-on-ones versus on camera. So some of those fundamentals are also the things that, because my team is now uh, in the U.S., pretty much fully distributed, so we don't have a true hub model. I've got a, a group that's together in Boston. I've got a handful of folks in New York, uh, a couple folks together in Salt Lake, but everyone else is is pretty much on their own, spread out in the U.S. Um, so we're our revenue kickoff is going to be the first full gathering uh, of the entire team since I joined. Um, I've been able to meet almost all of them in person, so I've been on a lot of airplanes since joining. Um, but we will start the cadence of quarterly meetups uh, around a, a WeWork or a hub location so that we're putting yeah. QBRs and some uh, consistent face-to-face meetings in place. Um, but that's going to be in terms of like my team specifically. I think the piece you'll probably be more interested in when you say, you know, rituals or how you're running that. I mean, things like, uh, we'll call it a funnel working group, but like every single individual that owns aspects of pipeline, how often do we get together and review every aspect of those numbers? Um, it'll be biweekly. Uh, we've just started the process of even finalizing what those dashboards look like. This is something I learned from my demand based days. They were just absolutely best in class at this um, because pipeline at demand base and, and truly the best organizations everywhere. Pipeline's always a team sport. The entire company owns it. Like we are in this thing together and we've got shared goals and of course, if you can be sophisticated at how you're measuring where everything comes from to understand how to optimize, that's wonderful. But at the end of the day, we've got to understand how much pipeline do we need and then what are all the mechanisms as that rolls through the funnel um, that we can work to optimize uh, to maximize revenue. Um, so we'll have biweekly cadences that review that really from top to bottom. So everything from uh, top, top of the funnel, quality of MQLs, and then every piece uh, of that funnel, um, not just to the close of the deal, but also the post-sale experience, which uh, for us is also at the core of, of our revenue, our go-to-market motion. I would love to double click on this one actually a little bit. Uh, and, and maybe that doesn't need to be, you know, what is it exactly that you're doing on Walnut now or planning to do, right? Because some of that still is forming basically. You also mentioned, hey, we did the very similar thing in demand base, for example. I think this could be a really cool nugget for people to take away because I totally agree with you. Like pipe gen is the number one problem for everyone out there, whether they know it or not, right? Yeah. Kind of, I think the the lesser so sophisticated teams that haven't figured this out, they're always talking about, oh, the reps and they're not closing enough and and they're lazy and that's why we're not hitting target. I think it's all BS. I think the real reason is they don't have enough to work on. That's the problem. That's why they're not actually uh, being able to you know hit their targets. And yes, sure, you can still optimize, you know, pipe to close, and there's lots of optimization potential, and you know, to teach those reps and enable those reps. But ultimately, um, you can have the best reps, but if you don't have any, you know, pipeline, it's it's not going to work out, right? So, let's let's talk a little bit more about this. I think you call it the. Did you call it the pipeline council or did I just imagine uh, this? Funnel working group is what I called it. Mm. The the funnel the funnel the working fun group. group. The fun group. The fun group. <laughs> this is Where the marketing guy group. right well, here. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was demand based naming, so I take no credit. But that was what was what we called it. And the so can we just double click a little bit on this kind of can you um, and maybe it's from demand base. You know how did a typical meeting look like? Who was involved? Who was talking? 
uh, that would be super interesting. Yeah, sure. I wasn't prepped to talk about this, but I love it. Great topic. <laughs> um, so we had a head of marketing ops, um, and this was a handful of years ago, so many things I'm sure have changed at Demand Base since. Uh, but our head of marketing ops was just this phenomenal world-class individual. Um, so she had owned and orchestrated the dashboards and the data that we reviewed. Um, so she would run the meeting, kick it off with very high-level stats, and we would look at the entirety of current quarter and next quarter pipeline. Uh, and then we would look at the stages and understand how things were progressing. Um, and we, of course, had... And this can be super sophisticated or I think super basic. On Walnut will be a little bit more basic than some of these. Yeah. Um, but we had very clear metrics at demand base for every different type of pipeline that we were building and then what that needed to look like for the different segments of the business. Because obviously enterprise deals take longer to close than mid-market, than SMB. So, so we had metrics and baselines around all of those. But it literally took us probably eight minutes on a weekly basis to have a very clear snapshot of where we were winning and where we were behind. Um, and we had a sense of what was coming around the corner that we needed to be very hyper aware of or concerned. And certainly every second line, but most frontline sales leaders were in this meeting as well. So it was a relatively large group. So it had to be efficient. Yeah. So it wasn't a waste of time. Um, but it was everyone had a sense of whether you're running it or not. Like, I know where we're at. I know where the challenges are. And I know where we're winning and where we're really leaning in from a business. So that was the initial structure. And then yeah. from there, we looked at, and this might be one piece of the statement you just made that, I don't know if disagree is the right word, but when we talk about pipeline or go to mar market being a team sport, like yes, a hundred percent. If you don't have the pipeline to work with, then it doesn't matter what you do at all the other stages. It's just fundamentally broken. So you've got to yeah. figure out how to fix that as a first. Um, but then there are so many other mechanisms because in that same meeting, there would be conversations where, hey, we're ahead of all of the top of the funnel goals but yet we're missing on second stage opportunities. So we're hitting MQLs and SQLs, or we're hitting this first phase and the second phase, but something's falling off a cliff in this segment right here. And then you've got the frontline leader or the second line leader that leads that team. And then they're giving some context. Hey, we're seeing this new competitor that's popping up. And we almost we were always able to get calls from this stage to this stage. And now we're getting kicked in the teeth on pricing. I'm just using an example yeah. here. But there's some also this kind of on the ground context around, here's where we're really struggling. And then in a perfect world, you've got someone from enablement that's also paying attention and thinking, I can help them fix that. Or you've got someone in product marketing that's thinking, I know how to, I, I know a soul for that. Oh, we're having an issue with this part of pricing. I wonder if we tweaked this one thing and got it into the field really quickly. Now we're optimizing, not just for the broken piece that's at the top of the funnel, which is super important if that's behind, but also this thing that we've identified mid funnel, that if we don't fix it quickly, at least in this segment, like we're, we do not have a path to be successful this quarter or yeah. next. So I think the whole thing is very much connected. So, I mean, how many people were in this room when this happened? Oh, you know, maybe virtually. It was, it was virtual. We were doing it over Zoom. I think it was probably 22, 23. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly actually how it sounds like. So number one, this is great for, uh, it's almost alignment actually also, right? Because you have the, you said first or second line sales leaders. Um, you had your top funnel folks, uh, probably marketing, maybe your SDR outbound team leaders as well and so forth, right? Uh, I mean, this is a full-on alignment session, basically kind of where you are today and what needs to happen in order to hit your target. I think this is absolutely fantastic. And um, now it's it maybe was an hour long, 20 people in there, few people were probably talking. Was there, was there kind of a culture of, let's just say, calling out and I don't want to say, you know, blaming and shaming or something like this, but was there a culture of like, hey, you know, we are behind on this area and this is your area and you yes. need to now go and fix it? Or was it more like a more like a collaborative thing? And maybe you're just saying it's a collaborative thing, but uh, really kind of a culture of, okay, you know, there's a, there's a problem over there. And that problem is probably going to result in 
X amount of revenue, you know, that we are missing by the end of the quarter and uh, end of next quarter, let's all brainstorm how could we find that money elsewhere? What was kind of the kind of the, 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 the modus operandi in order to work through those issues? I love the question. And from my perspective, to have a true culture of collaboration, there also has to be a culture of accountability. That's what you're yeah. describing. Like if something is broken and one team owns it, then there has to be a sense of how do we fix it? And yes, there should be an all hands on deck approach of what else can we do? How do we rally around this problem? But there does have to be a clear owner and some semblance of, hey, I don't have an answer here in this meeting. I don't know why this thing has fallen off the cliff or why we're struggling here. But by this meeting two weeks from now, I'm going to have an answer and I'm going to have a follow up in the, you know, in the meantime, I may have some additional questions. I may have some asks, but a sense of accountability in terms of where things have gone awry and at least what the goal is in terms of who's going to own fixing them for sure. And I think it can also, because what I just described at Demandbase was obviously much more sophisticated than what we'll put in place at, at Walnuts. We're just a really small team. We have a lot less individuals when you think about, you know, people in those leadership roles that own those various pieces. But I think you can accomplish the exact same level of transparency that leads to alignment, that leads to accountability, that leads to really strong execution. Those are all very much connected, whether you're talking about a group of five or a group of, you know, 55 in a much larger company. No, exactly. And I would, I would even argue, right, the, the, the numbers of zeros that you have there on, on the pipeline, it doesn't actually, that, that's not indicative of whether or not you can use that tactic. I think where it starts to become really important is you have multiple channels, maybe in multiple regions, uh, you know, it gets a little bit fuzzy there and it gets a little bit difficult to drive accountability on that part um, in order then to also say, well, this is green, this is green, but this is red. What are we going to do about this? And the consequence is going to be X. I think there's there needs to be a bit of a data baseline below that, I would say, kind of to have a conversation. But ultimately, the accountability, the collaboration, the transparency, and then the uh, attitude of let's go fix it, I think that's actually what the outcome is. That's actually what you want to have, right? The sophistication below that is only enabling that to a degree. Yeah, I 100% agree. So um, one thing that's kind of lurking in my head, you raised 35 million, uh, what, year and a half ago, something like this. So we're back to Walnut. We're back to Walnut. We're back to Walnut. That's the thing. Uh, you raised 35 million. You're focused on building a U.S. market. Outbound is kind of the new motion, right? H how are you approaching this next next phase of growth? Because there's also, I imagine, a lot of challenges that come with it. You've been, it sounds like mainly inbound driven. That team doesn't, doesn't sit under you. It sits in Israel as well, and you're building out an outbound motion. So, so you know, did I get it right? Or uh, the inbound folks do all report into me. So sellers and BDRs do uh, work in my org. And yeah, just to clarify, we don't have this massive separate team that's fielding all the inbound. Like we don't have this big yeah. SDR org that's reporting into marketing um, because a majority of the lead flow that comes in goes directly to AEs. Remember, we're trying to fix this broken buying process, so we're trying to minimize the number of individuals you have to talk to if you actually want to get a demo of the software or learn about and buy Walnut. Oh, there you go. Um, so uh, most of them, it's all reporting straight into me, and it's about really optimizing that experience. But I think what you're getting at is that breakdown of if you've got a marketing team that I don't own directly, but we've yeah. been very, very dependent on that marketing right. engine, how do you slowly shift away from that while not shifting away from that. I think that was maybe the crux of your that question. That was exactly where I was going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can read your mind over Zoom. And, and it's an interesting challenge and it's an interesting opportunity um, because I think that we are so incredibly privileged to be in this building stage where we've been able to build on the back of phenomenal inbound demand. Uh, but it requires a ton of alignment between myself, 
our head of marketing, our head of demand gen of working very collect. I mean, even right now we're finalizing the the financial plan for the year ahead. And so part of that is the entire marketing waterfall. Like mm. I, I had to spend a lot of time getting up to speed on what are all of our historicals. And guess what? Our historicals were different in 2022 than they were in 2023. 2023 was a tough year for anyone selling into software companies. So looking yeah. at what changed, what were the mechanisms, what are things that went really well, uh, how much did we have to spend for every single lead that came in? Like what's the the dollars and cents plans that are going to get us to the percentage of inbound that we feel like is going to drive us to the the number this year? Um, so that's definitely not a me planning versus a him planning. We, we're, we're planning it together because it's got to all be one uh, cohesive plan. Got it. And, and I'm also just curious because you said you're trying to run a really like lean machine with as few people in, involved, but do you still run the classic SDR outbound meeting booking and then pass off to AE? That's I'm guessing still part of the motion. We have a really small team of SDRs that do only outbound demand generation. So they're the beginning of that as we're building the outbound motion. Um, we yeah. don't currently have SDRs that are filled, fielding inbound demand. So actually this was, you know, one of my next questions. So Drift and Salesoft, they just merged, completely yeah. different topic. But Drift, very, very, you know, early on, they had this no forms uh, thing and uh, and they should everything, you know, everything should be done through their chatbot, right? And, and um, you know, from from folklore by now, you know, it's like, well, they kind of scrapped all the forms. They have forms back now, by the way. But they scrapped all the forms because, hey, they need to be, you need to be aligned with your message, right? Um, you guys are talking about the, you know, the the, the sales pros or the go-to-market pros are fundamentally broken. Uh, you know, there's this whole demo thing. How does how does that affect your own go-to-market? How do you how do you live your own uh, vision actually? And how do you how do you eat your own own dog food or drink your own champagne in that sense? Kind of how does that translate back to what you do specifically in your go-to-market that probably other teams. Um, either haven't figured out yet or, or simply are not woken up yet to the uh, new way of how buyers actually want to interact with your brand. It's literally the most important thing I've been focused on since day one is how do we make my go-to-market org the absolute best power users of Walnut at every stage of the buying process in the universe. Um, so we're not yet currently there, um, but there are a lot of interesting, super positive things that we do with our products. And it is some of those examples I gave earlier on in the call. It's how do you connect the entire experience of how someone's interacting with, you know, uh, product tours that are on your website, the various things that they're interacting with via email. So they, my, my team, they use Walnut to build, we call them Walnuts, but you can think of a Walnut as just some version of an interactive demo. Um, so they send Walnuts in their pre-meeting uh, emails that go out. So if you've booked an inbound meeting with us, you're going to get a Walnut, at least a day before that meeting, um, that's going to capture some small piece of our product. Are you interested? Then we're going to use our product also to understand, did you click through any piece of that interactive demo? If you did, that rep is going to know what you've spent time on, what you were interested in. They're going to use that as part of the conversation. Of course, we're, we showed uh, examples of customers in our first demos as well. So you can understand how our customers are using our own product to demo um, in various different public facing uh, ways. But then every aspect of the follow up, the additional conversations that you're having are going to be anchored around some aspect of our product that you were interested in, wanted to learn more about, wanted to test. So you've got it at your fingertips uh, throughout the yeah. entire buying process. I love this. It's and maybe this is unpopular now, but to a degree, what you're what you're kind of enabling there is you give mid-market enterprise companies or people that sell to mid-market enterprise companies with like maybe fairly complex products, you give them a little bit of a sniff of the of the PLG experience. You yeah. know, it's like, hey, you can try, you can trial, you can see it, you can interact with this, 
You don't have to talk to a, a seller. You can actually click already here. It's not the right thing, but it's almost the right thing, right? So I think this, this kind of buyer behavior that has been trained and, uh, and popularized through this whole PLG movement, basically, uh, to a degree, yes, it's also the product that they're selling. And, you know, I'm totally aware of this, but uh, to a degree, kind of that's, that's basically kind of almost what you want to what you enable with this customer-centric approach. Like, hey, the, we're not holding the demo hostage. Mm. You know, you, it's, you, you don't need to wait for the fifth call to finally see product. We're actually going to, we're going to give it before the call and we're going to put it on the website. And, uh, and we're not going to put all gates around it. We actually want to use it to see what you're interested in. So then we can tailor a better uh, buying experience and probably higher conversion rates. And you've probably all of those ROI arguments handy right now uh, for then the um, uh, the seller to be more successful, right? Kind of that's that's almost what you're enabling with this uh, with this approach. And obviously at the same time, yes, that's also the the, the product that you guys are selling. And we all throw around the, the Gartner stat that 75% of buyers want a rep-free experience. Yeah. That same report also talks about that those people with a rep-free buying experience end up not buying the right thing and regret the purchase. So <laughs> yeah. there is certainly this perfect in-between where, yes, as a buyer, I want to be empowered to do more of the education and more of the experience on my own. But we also acknowledge at Walnut, we're selling something that the product itself is not complex. But when you're talking about impacting or transforming how a company is going to market, that's massively complex. There's change yeah. management. There are big decisions that have to be made as part of that process. So it's finding that sweet spot of, how do we give them access to as much as possible to understand our product and learn about it and experience it every step of the way so that the conversations we're having as sellers or executives or others that are engaged are the right conversations. They're the impactful conversations versus the 30 minute or one hour can demo that feels exactly the same as every other demo that they've gone through. Like that's not the best use of their time. I also wonder like with with this, while you're kind of shifting the approach to sales to kind of run how you envision sales should run, you also have money you need to deploy to continue the growth trajectory, right? And that sometimes means adding more sales folks onto the team, right? And you said you kind of want to run a, not scrappy, but you want to run a lean machine, kind of, right? So how do you go about actually scaling that motion, specifically also in the States right now, and knowing whether that's the right bet versus should we, could we do more inbound or like, so how, how do you go about basically deploying that uh, those resources to grow, yeah, grow the company. And, and we're hiring, we're adding headcount. We're just doing it very strategically and purposefully. Um, so, and, and we did some growth back right after our initial funding round, our second funding round a year and a half ago, um, because we've matured a bit since then and we're anchoring more on an outbound, all bound, just a little bit more focused approach. It's a different maybe type of rep that you're interviewing. We're also at a different mm -hmm. stage of the market. Things have shifted a bit in the last two years. Um, so ensuring that we're hiring the right individuals for the various segments that we sell into, because um, we've, we've essentially got three segments of our business that are different size of companies. Um, and as we think about building that more strategic outbound motion, specifically for us, that's upper mid market and then the lower end of enterprise. Um, so we're hiring specific reps um, that we feel like have some experience and some excitement, not just to come in and take over a playbook and replicate what's already been done before, but we're looking for builders for sure um, that have an excitement to be at this early stage of a company, someone that's building a category and really helping to create a go-to-market motion as well. I, th I think that's super interesting because sometimes I, what you notice happens is company X raises whatever series A opens up 20 roles for sales reps, same month almost, right? Yeah. And I can't see that going very well in a lot of cases. So being purposeful, um, for me, it makes a lot of sense. There, there's another thing kind of layered in there to to what you said. Almost, 
it sounds like the profile you're going after is fundamentally different because you want to have you want to create this almost different experience as well can you maybe tell us a bit little bit more like what's the archetype of the role you're going after? How is it different from what, what you've seen? I mean, you've been at Marketo and Demand Base um, and assume there are some classic profiles you'd go after there versus versus now. Well, it's interesting. Some of, at least the interviews that I'm running now and the reps that I'm specifically looking for, they actually do meet some of that criteria of what made a really successful rep at Demand Base or even Marketo back in the day because they're insanely curious about B2B sales, B2B go-to-market. They have an opinion and a point of view. They didn't just take a sales job because it was like the career path that landed in their lap. Most of us are accidental salespeople, if that's the path that we went down. Uh, at least my generation, most of it was an accident. Um, but there is some element of an unlock where like, they are genuinely interested in this space and excited to help figure things out and learn and are intellectually curious versus someone that We've all met these amazing people that could sell anything to anyone. Like you give them some clunky piece of, I don't know, software that's going to sell into a CFO line of business and they're going to figure it out and they're going to learn how to sell it. Like that's an amazing skill set. That's different than the skill set of a seller that we need at Walnut today. Like we need someone, of course, that's got some sales DNA and sales acumen, but also someone that is fundamentally interested in being in this space of B2B sales, B2B go-to-market. They have some ambitions to grow a career in sales tech specifically, uh, because that's the level of curiosity that's going to take to not just learn our product, but figure out what's what's B2B go-to-market going to look like in 18 months or 24 months. What does AI really mean for the profession of professional selling? Like, There's a lot of big questions that I think we're going to be, or we have the potential to be on the forefront of answering. So we need a specific person to help us get there. Really cool. Okay, Katie, I mean, I think this was a really cool conversation. Really interesting to hear, obviously, the, the, the difficulties and complexities surrounding growing Walnut, also in those challenging times right now, right? We, we talked a little bit about the, the full funnel council, the funnel team, the funnel the fun. meeting, uh, the funnel group <laughs> at the market. I was going to with that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that was that was really insightful. Lots lots to take away for folks listening, I think. And then really talking about this shifting landscape that you're trying to meet with a, maybe a different or more specific kind of salesperson, actually kind of tackling a specific of that part. So really cool to hear all of that stuff. And Katie, thank you so much for being here and, uh, and, and sharing your wisdom with us. Yeah, Michael, Tony, it was lovely to meet both of you. And thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. Have a good okay. one. Bye-bye.